0: For those of you who are members or regular attenders of our church, uh, you know that it's our custom to, more often than not, uh, say the Lord's Prayer uh, when we finish up our morning prayer uh, in the beginning of our service. And, you know, of course, part of that prayer is uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord taught us this prayer. And part of that is to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Notice that, according to the teaching of the Lord, there's a connection there between us giving forgiveness and recognition that we have received forgiveness. And we're going to see that connection all throughout Holy Scripture. For instance, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, as, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. As we pick up with Second uh, Corinthians today, uh, we will call... Uh, the last Lord's Day as we looked at the opening of chapter 2, that the apostle Paul was defending his integrity uh, and he brought in the, the principle of conscience, that he has not violated his conscience and he is defending himself against accusations uh, that were um, made against him. And Paul, Paul was really sinned against in the Corinthian church. The church had become a, a very deep and profound Burden, just like a wayward child would be to a parent. And uh, you would think that Paul uh, want, wants, uh, wants blood. Uh, he wants, in a sense, vengeance for those who have caused all this trouble for him. But one of the things we're going to see as we go to school on Paul again and on our Lord is his, uh, his overflowing desire to grant forgiveness and to bring unity in the church because of it. So our, my hope today is as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that those of us who have been forgiven will also be those who are forgiving. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we turn to you, Lord, and, and we turn to you with a recognition of the difficulty of this teaching of this passage. Uh, forgiveness is one of those things we can understand, we can appreciate, and it looks great on paper. When it comes to real life situations of people who have deeply hurt us, perhaps even scarred us, sometimes perhaps it's a whole nother thing. But it is our great desire to not only lay our lives and our sin before you, but also all of our complexities and our struggle and our past and our future before you. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to learn how the forgiven can be the forgiving no matter what as we look at this passage in Holy Scripture this morning. Please be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have four different sections of this uh, of these few short verses here, and you might find your home group helps uh, insert of assistance to you as you follow along with me in our sermon. First of all, you're going to see the offense in verse 5. Then you can see forgiveness is essential in verses 6 through 8. Forgiveness is obedience in, verses nine, in verse 9. And forgiveness is unifying in uh, verses 10 through 11 here. Uh, So let me read the entire passage to you, and then we'll break out uh, its various parts here. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 11. Paul writes, God says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But whom you forgive anything... I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did for your sakes in the presence of Christ in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." So we start off here with the offense uh, kind of being uh, alluded to here in verse four, 5 here. Uh, th- there's a cause of sorrow. There is a cause of sorrow within the entire church. The offense that happened uh, against Paul was a public offense that pro- brought grief to many, many people. It was a real offense, and it was a very serious offense. So there's no, there's no uh, th- th- you, you don't get to the level of forgiveness by pretending something didn't happen. You have to address the sin, the offense, head on, which is the Apostle Paul is doing there. And, and, and we have to sort of guess as to the nature of the offense. And there's some different views on based on uh, different uh, background in the Corinthian church and everything. But it appears that what happened, and I think most people that I read kind of had this conclusion, that what had happened is during Paul's visit... Uh, To the Corinthians, one of his visits during the Corinthians, uh, he was publicly challenged, probably by an officer. uh, And he was publicly humiliated in front of everybody else. And the church stood idly by and watched it happen. And the tension that that created and the accusations were so serious, probably accusations that maybe he was pilfering some of the money that he was collecting for the Judean church, accusations but, but his, te- his teaching wasn't really completely true, maybe accusations that he wasn't a real apostle, accusations about the change of his schedule and how come he didn't love the Corinthian church more, whatever you, whatever you want to imagine based on the readings of these, these epistles. Uh, it was a serious accusation. And evidently, it was so serious that called caused Paul to withdraw from the Corinthian church and then write them the difficult letter that he alludes to uh, in chapter 2, verse 2 here uh, to talk about the need for discipline within the church here. So there is certainly sorrow that is going down here. But notice this, that Paul downplays the offense. His overarching desire is that love be demonstrated and that unity be within the church. So he downplays it. He says, it caused me sorrow, but then to some degree. Not only that, notice he goes to great lengths not to even mention the offender by name. You know, it's a, what does he say here? A, a, a certain someone, you know, uh, has has done this. He, he doesn't mention them by name. He's trying to take va- real care not to upset an upsetting uh, upsetting situation here. He's careful, but the other thing is he's, he's careful not to make, to make sure that he doesn't cause other people to take up an offense for him, and that's apparently what's happening. And this is one of the things, well, kind of the practical applications of this kind of thing. You've got to be careful about taking up an offense for someone else. When you see someone else who's hurt... Uh, it, sometimes we take that as an opportunity to get vengeful, to get bitter uh, on behalf of that other person. But one of the dangers of that is you don't know both sides of the story. You don't know what's going on there. And quite frankly, you've got enough problems of your own to be all uptight about what's going on with somebody else. I'm not saying you don't care. I'm not saying you don't get involved. I'm not saying that you don't work things out. But you've got to be real careful about taking up an offense about someone else. And you had in the Corinthian church a lot of factions. You remember? You go back to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, where Paul says uh, that he has been informed, uh, by my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. So you had, you had different factions, different clubs within the Corinthian church. And the Paul faction wants blood. They are offended that Paul was humiliated like that in public. Maybe the Cephas faction likes it because maybe they'll get more members because Paul was humiliated. You know, there's just a dysfunctional church. I mean, to be to a certain, extent, every church is dysfunctional, right? But, but Paul is trying to, he's trying to throw water on the fire of people's pride, people's vengeance, people's desire uh, to get even here. And he talks about here that that all of us were hurt by this. Here's the point. Every individual man, we are part of a body. And when part of the body hurts, we all hurt. And this is our experience. It's also scriptural. He wrote the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's why church discipline issues must be addressed. These things will fester otherwise. And it starts off by hurting three people, but then it very quickly can become 30. It can become 300 people if the issues are not addressed here. So there's a connection here within the church body that Paul really wants to point to. There's a dynamic within being part of a member of a, of a local church here. So Paul, he, he, he rises above the offense. He was publicly humiliated, but he rises above that, and he refuses a couple of extremes that you also need to refuse. When you've been sinned against, when you've been offended, when you've been hurt, when you've been abused. And those extremes are anger and self-pity. Anger and self-pity. It is so easy just to stew in bitterness and become angry, not only towards the offender, but towards who else? God that allowed those things to happen if you're not careful. And then there's also this tendency, maybe some of it depends on your personality type, I don't know. But will you, will you fall into self-pity? Woe is me, I'm just the world's punching bag. And everything happens to me, and, 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 and we've got to be very... Neither one of those are going gr- to bring about godliness. Neither one of those are going to bring about sanctification. And as we're going to see later on, the fact is, is God does allow certain things, even bad things in our lives, in order to bring about godliness and sanctification. And we're full of examples. Paul is one of them. We're full of examples of that kind of thing. But bitterness, as the author of Hebrews says, defiles many. You cannot just be bitter by yourself. You will end up smearing that bitterness on other people and hurting them. Even if it's something just withholding love. Or assistance with someone because you're stewing in bitterness. You'll miss a moment to be able to do that. But within a church, it can kill a church. And we've all been around people. You can feel their bitterness. You can feel their hurt. You can feel their, uh, their, their desire to get even. And uh, it, it's just so, so part of the forgiveness thing is, is for our own self-help. We need to be able to, uh, to forgive. So how often do we forgive? How much do we forgive? Well, you know, Peter asked that question to Jesus, and Peter thought he was like really being magnanimous here. He thought, well, I'm going to be Mr. Forgiveness here when he asked the question. Uh, Matthew 18. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my uh, my brother? I'm sorry. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? He's thinking, well, seven times is a lot. I mean, I probably wouldn't do it more than once. But I'll say seven because he's Jesus and I want to impress him, you know. So Jesus doesn't say, well done, Peter. Yeah, seven times is good. Jesus says, "Uh, I did not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. That's an awful lot of forgiveness. 70. And and he's not, you know, you math people are going 70 times seven, you know. Uh, I actually wish I'd calculated it up so I could tell you what it is. What he really means is infinite. You never stop forgiving. Now, we're going to qualify that in a minute, but you never stop forgiving. So Peter thought he was being great. I don't know that I've ever had to forgive someone seven times. Well, maybe. But, well, some of you. No, I'm kidding. Now, I don't know that I've had to forgive people seven times. That's a lot of times. Seventy times Seven. It's not like you reach the point where, yep, okay, the threshold has been gone over. No more forgiveness here. I'm, I'm going to be a bitter crudge-a-mudgeon for the rest of my life. yee Can't wait to join that church. Well, part of this really is because you embrace God's wonderful, wonderful providence, right? You, you don't have to give get even because you know vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You don't have to get all uptight and, and overwhelmed and burdened by the circumstances because you know there is a God who is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. I don't think most of us enjoy the peace that should be bringing us. That our God who loves you to the point he let his son die for you, not even let him, he sent his son to die for you. He killed his son to die for you. Our God is in charge of everything, even the terrible things that have happened to you and all the offenses and all the bad words and the meanness. Our God is over all so we can have a confidence that he will take care of things that we can't take care of. Then in a sense, that's what bitterness is. It's an inability to get even. So you stew within yourself, right? Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, the one that wanted to forgive seven times, right? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and, be, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, and this is it, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Had a conversation with a young man who owns a business who's um, had a, uh, an employee who has just been just gossiping about him, slandering him, causing a lot of ill will and things like that. And um, and uh, basically, it's caused some people to kind of turn against him. And one reason why is this: the owner of this business didn't try to get vengeance. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't go. He didn't counter gossip with gossip or slander with slander. He took the high road. And then since he's paid a price for it. Because he appears to be the guilty party. But one of the things that, though, that, that you learn after a while is that, that justice will come. It may take a little while, but justice will come. God sees all. And, and this, is the kind, this kind of person who does this is the kind of person who's going to do it again to somebody else within a few months and a few months and a few months and a few months. And one day he may get a phone call. Sorry. I, we really, I need to ask your forgiveness. Some of you have gotten these phone calls. I was really opposed to what you did and I thought you were wrong. And then I've come to know the situation a little bit more and that person a little bit more. And I really realized you were in the right and I'm just calling to ask your forgiveness. You don't always get the phone calls. But taking the, the high ground keeps you from thinking you're guilty here when it's actually the other person. Wonderful example of that with Joseph, right? Co- coat of many colors, Joseph in Genesis chapter 45, I mean, as bad as y'all have had it, most of you have probably not been sold into slavery by your brothers, and then seduced by the head of the household, and then thrown in prison, and then forgotten, and that kind of thing, and then made prime minister. If that's all happened to you, none of you have been made prime minister of of Egypt. Uh, So the the illustrations, you, you can't do the comparison after that point. But think about Joseph. And, you know, he was in jail for a long time. God's not in a hurry developing our character. He was in jail for a long time. It's kind of like David. We love David because David loved God, and David learned to love God because he was a criminal and an outlaw hiding in in the caves of En for years. We admire Joseph because he was rotting in a prison for years, and he ended up being used to save the covenant people of God through famine. Genesis 45, he's speaking to his brothers and he says to his brothers, those who sold him into slavery, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Isn't that interesting? He's sad for them because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now Joseph had the advantage of actually having to see the reason why all those things happened. Had they not done their evil thing, he wouldn't have landed in Egypt and they would all have died. He had the, we don't always get that. But one of the things I love about this passage too is he actually hurt for his brothers. Do not be angry against yourself. Do not beat yourself up over this because God even used your sin to be able to do this. There's a compassion for the offender. Maybe that's one of my biggest concerns about this topic is because I have seen what bitterness does to people. The, The person who is the offender does need forgiveness, but you need to be able to forgive, otherwise you could become someone you never wanted to become. You don't have to worry about that person's behavior changing either. A lot of people don't repent. They may not ever change. They may be that same kind of person no matter what they did to you. They don't even remember what they did to you, and yet you can hardly uh, forget about it in a lot of ways. But your forgiveness is not dependent on their change. You're dependent, your, your forgiveness is understand that God never changes. And he's looking after you. You see here, forgiveness is essential, verses 6 through uh, 18 here. Uh, and Paul, Paul's basically saying that uh, I, the, the, the punishment is enough uh, that was inflicted by the majority. You need to forgive and comfort this person so that he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And then you need to reaffirm your your your, um, your love for him. Now, let me ask you this. Was Paul just a big softy? Was he just a big mush bucket? Was he just a huge conflict avoider? And we shouldn't go to school on Paul because uh, he was just a, a kind of a, a wimp? Like, I mean, if there's anything Paul is, it ain't wimp. I mean, again, he was shipwrecked three times. How long do you have to tread water to be Paul, you know? The guy guy was a superhero in terms of Christian character, right? So he's not a conflict. And if you don't believe me, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was an offender, a man committing incest, in the church. The church wouldn't address it. And what did Paul say? Excommunicate that man. I'm going to hand him over to Satan. And we don't know exactly how that, that, that happened, how that came about. But Paul was all about church discipline. What's the difference between this case and that case? What's the difference? This man repented, that man didn't. And that really does matter. So from in terms of a church standpoint, you look for a soft heart. You look for humble uh, humility. You look for people who repent before they come back into the normal realm of Christian life. That individual did not repent. This individual did. Paul saying, "It's enough. It's enough. That you need to forgive. Otherwise, you're going to become bitter. Otherwise, we're going to have disunity within the church." Now, here, here's the here's the qualifier. You know, it's been it's been said, preaching is intended to inflict afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And in a situation like this, when we talk about a, a um, we talk about forgiveness. We've got both. We've got people who are too comfortable with it, and we've got people who've been really afflicted. So I'm always a little concerned about qualifying sermons because it can kind of throw water on the fire. But, but here's one from a pastoral standpoint. Uh, a lot of us have scars and a lot of us have wounds. I need to qualify some things here. And I'll do this with a, with a story. Uh, a number of years ago, had a young lady uh, uh, that had come to know Christ uh, at, at a later age. I mean, I think she was 40 at the time. And as she started reading Scripture, she came across the fifth commandment. You shall honor father and mother. And this was a profound burden for her because her father sexually abused her most of her life. And, she, and her father wanted, was come, wanted to come into town and be with her and see her again. And she was struggling with that. I, I'm a Christian now. I know I can forgive and I do forgive. But what about this honor thing? Well, my counsel to her was that he has for, for this, uh, this uh, father, in her case, father it could be somebody else, forfeited the right for that kind of honor. He broke his covenant vow. He abused you when he should have been protecting you. He, in a sense, hated you. Or lusted towards you when he should have been loving to you. He forfeited his right to honor. Now that doesn't give you a right to be bitter and hateful. But it does give you the right to to dispense with having to be with him. He's gone. He's gone. If he's repented, what what if he's repented? Well, maybe that could work out down the road. But if he has, he wouldn't insist on always being with you. Now, that's maybe a unique situation, but it's a lot less unique than we like to think. This is one reason why the church allow. This is excommunication. This person has been excommunicated from the church. This is one reason why the, the church, good churches, Bible-believing churches, do permit divorce in certain situations. And some of those situations are adultery and abandonment. And abandonment would accuse abuse. I mean, it would include abuse because this person has abandoned their prerogatives as the protector and the provider or the nurturer of the household, and they have, they have violated those covenant vows, they're, they're, therefore it's a conscious decision about how much contact you want to have with that person. Even for your sake, even if they haven't asked for forgiveness, you need to forgive. Otherwise, it'll, it'll eat you alive like a cancer. But you, in a sense, you can forget. You don't have to continue to have... You are not obligated when someone has disgraced themselves. They have surrendered their, their right. If it's a wife that's been abandoned by a f- husband, they have surrendered their, their, their right for the wife to submit to them in honor because they treated her in dishonor. Now, that's my opinion i 'm not a professional counselor i 've only dealt with a few of these kinds of situations, but I think I, think I have the lord 's opinion on that as well because a lot of us have been through a lot of difficult situations, and one of the, the terrors of it oh says okay, I forgive, but then I have repeated contact My own uh, family in, in in the extended family we had a clinical narcissist in our family. this person almost was it, it, it was almost his his hobby to use people and take advantage of people and I saw that handled well in my family the rest of my family forgave him but had nothing to do with him why would you set yourself up for more abuse and more use so there is a part here that wisdom comes into play as well so I think that's worth the qualification based on what uh, a lot of us have gone through right So he got sufficient. He says sufficient for such a one is this punishment. This idea of punishment really is an extra uh, biblical Greek word. We don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament, but it means an official disciplinary act. So this person was excommunicated. The church evidently with all of its flaws did follow the procedures of Matthew 18. They went to the individual. He didn't repent. They took several other people. He didn't repent. They took it to the church and he was treated like an unbeliever. He was not allowed to come to the communion table. The communion table is for believers only. This person acted like an unbeliever. They didn't repent, so they would not allow them. him. But later on, he, he actually does repent. So as Paul said uh, to the Thessalonians, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, it actually takes a lot of love to correct someone's sin. Now, there's, some, some, there are, there's probably 5% out there that really enjoy it. <laughs> I can't wait to correct this sin, you know. Uh, that's not most of us. Maybe it's more than 5% now that I think about it. But, but, but um, I mean, it really takes love, doesn't it? It really takes love. And it takes love to receive it. And it takes Humility. And he says here, you should rather forgive and comfort him. They are actually jeopardizing their joy and and, and peace. You can overdo discipline. We know that as parents, right? You can can discipline a child where they just lose hope, right? So uh, the other principle is this, is that Paul is saying, you're at that point where you are actually sinning to correct sin. Sinning to correct sin. We think, Well, who would do that? Our country does it all the time. Now, if the risks sound like I'm being political, I'm not being, well, maybe I'm being a little political, but uh, critical race theory, critical race theory is one of these things. It seeks to undo past injustices by bringing in injustice. Well, you don't fix sin with sin. You don't fix racism with racism. But we've got this vengeance mindset where that's exactly what you do. Well, that helps no one. It helps no one. And yet, that's become the curriculum in a number of schools. Because this happened, you can now do this, even though it's wrong. You don't fix injustice with injustice. You don't fix sin with sin. You don't fix bitterness with bitterness. You don't fix anything with bitterness of sin. It always brings death. You don't reverse injustice with further injustice. He says he's, he's concerned this person's going to be overwhelmed with, with uh, excessive sorrow. That idea of, of, of overwhelmed can also be translated swallow, drown, or devour. It's like what happened in Korah's rebellion where the, where the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed Korah within the earth. You, you, you could bring this person to the, to, the, to the end of hope. They could be so totally consumed with grief uh, that they can't get up. They, they're, they're, their spirit can be crushed. So they were right in excommunicating the offender, but if they don't if they don't repent, they're going to be wrong to withhold forgiveness. Now maybe you got to test the person to see how sincere their forgiveness is. But it's almost like they were enjoying it. They're taking up the offense for Paul. The Paul party is going to make sure this guy suffers for a while longer until he squirms and then maybe we'll bring him back. But then we're not going to invite him to the covered dish meals. We're going to take his name off the email list. We're not going to speak to him when he comes. You, y'all, has this stuff happened? It's happened, right? Not, not here. And I, I hope. If it has, let me know. Uh, but wait till Monday. I get you know. <laughs> I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. There's a power of love here. Here's the other thing. There are, there are lessons to, when you've really blown it like this guy blew it and you really do repent from it, that guy's going to be a better Christian. That guy's going to be uh, uh, better, have, have a deeper understanding and love for people and for God because of the humiliation of his sin. There's this there's this always this talk within my circles, you know, can a can a pastor that's had an affair ever be in the pulpit again? That's a that's a complicated question. I'm not gonna answer it this morning. I, I, I go back and forth in my own answer. But when someone has really blown it, really failed, and really experienced the shame of coming back in repentance, I'm telling you, that's the kind of guy I want on my team. Because there's no better teacher than failure, right? There's no better teacher than failure. And when you can come back out of that, like a phoenix, out of that fire of remorse and regret and, and everything, it's just, it's just worth it. It's worth it. So what do we do? We, do we put the scarlet letter on a person like that? Adulterer. No. We, had, we actually had that here in our church. We had a great example of this. Um, some of you would remember, uh, I got a phone call from a gentleman who was staying at the Haven of Rest. And, uh, and he's uh, actually I got a phone call. I'm sorry. First of all, from an elder at Woodruff Road Presbyterian, great PCA church in Greenville, Simpsonville. And I knew this elder. I did premarital counseling for his, uh, for his son. And he says, we we got a situation we need your help with. Okay. Then I get a phone call from a guy who was staying at the Haven of Rest. And he says, hello, this is my name. And And, 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 he, said, and he said, I'd like to get with you. So he's staying at the Haven of Rest. Glenn. I go over and meet with him at the Haven of Rest. And his story was this. He ended up at the Haven of Rest because he beat up his roommate. He got arrested spending nine days in jail. And as soon as he was he got out of jail, he saw the Haven of Rest van. He jumped on it and said, I need some help. And he came to the Haven of Rest. The story prior to that was he and his wife were heavily involved, very big members, taught Sunday school at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church. And they started to get away from the faith and they started to have issues and both of them ended up committing adultery. And they, stu- they wouldn't repent. They stood trial and Woodruff Road PCA excommunicated them. By the way, that's, we're here celebrating Reformation uh, Reformation month, that's one of the signs of a true church is you actually have church discipline. You actually expect people to behave the way God expects them to. And you forgive them when they don't. So these people were excommunicated. He went on to become a Greek Orthodox monk. I think, what? <laughs> you know? uh, and and uh, he did that for a little while, did some carpentry and everything anyway. His roommate stole from him. He punched his roommate and did uh, the, the nine days of jail. And and he said, I I want to come back into the fold of the church. I I want to repent. I want to take communion again. So we worked with Woodruff Road PCA. He proved to be uh, truly contrite of heart, really loved the Lord, wanted to come. May have gotten saved there. We don't know. Uh, He went and stood before the elders of Woodruff Road PCA and was restored. And I had the pleasure of serving that man communion for the first time, I think, in 10 or 12 years. And I'll never forget when he took of the elements, just the, the look on his face. I'm back. I'm back in the family of God. You know? Well, that's what Paul wants for this fella. This fellow's repented. So let him, back, let him back to the table. Let him back in. Trust him again. Love him again. Help him again. The, th- the thing is, is that it takes humility. And it takes a real understanding of our own sin. I tell you, folks, there's just few things that I couldn't commit given the same kind of background and dysfunction and chemicals or whatever that a lot of other people have gotten. A lot, this is one of the problems with conservatives. We're big on judging people who are tempted with things we're not tempted with. That's not a temptation of mine. Therefore, I'm better than you. Be careful. Be careful. Galatians 6.1 um, 6, says this, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, as a legitimate trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted yourself. And then you are to have love for him. This idea of love is agape. It's a choice of will and of humble service. I've got a wonderful, y'all know Corey Tim Boone? Uh, the Hiding Place, great movie. So uh, Jack Stoffer and I were meeting in my study before this, and I said, "I got this amazing Corinne Tim Broome illustration I'm going to use today." He says, "Oh, I've been in her house." He said, "Yeah, I've been Corinne Tim Broome's house in Harlem, uh, Amsterdam. Matter of fact, they still have all the hiding places there. And what they do, the tour guide you you go and hide, and then she presses the button, and then you go and hide, and then they try to find you, and just like you were a Jew hiding from the Nazis. And it's really a cool experience. It's probably one of the top experiences I've ever had in Europe." Mr. One Upsman. Jack Stauffer. <laughs> rained on my parade. <laughs> so it would mean a lot to me when you leave today if you could say, I love that illustration of Corey Timboon. <laughs> that was mean, sorry. <laughs> but it was funny. You're okay with it, right? No. I told him I was gonna point him out on that. This and I borrowed this from somebody else too. <clears throat> Corey Boone recalled in her book *The Hiding Place* a post-war meeting with a guard from Ravensbruck concentration camp, where she and her sister—her sister had died—and where she had been subject to horrible indignities. And here's their account from *The Hiding Place*. It was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbruck. Now, you, y'all have seen enough. Holocaust movies and things to know what that would have looked like. Total humiliation, terror. And this was the guard at the door where all these ladies were taking their clothes off and having to go into the shower. He was he was the first of our actual jailers that had we had seen in some time or in that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and Betsy's pain blanched face. Betsy died in that camp. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, quote, how grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, I am wa- uh, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blohemmedal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. That's the power of the gospel. That a Nazi prison guard could be forgiven. And that someone who was a victim of the Nazi prison guard could be forgiven. And that they could be brothers and sisters in Christ. And she also understood that the, at its core, unforgiveness is a lack of love. We see here in verse 9 that forgiveness is obedience. Uh, Paul is not only begging the Corinthians to restore them, he's viewing it as a matter of obedience here. He talks about how he's testing them. Uh, and, and, and he wants to know, are they going to actually pass the test? Because if they don't, the whole love chapter of, verse, of 1 Corinthians 13 was a waste of papyrus and ink, right? Think about that passage of the, uh, in Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> For this reason, the kingdom of heaven be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, so that they had repayment to be, they had a repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything." The lord of that slave fell compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, have patience with me. And I will repay you the same words. He was unwilling, however, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning them, this Lord said to them, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, hand him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That parable scares me. Uh, forgiveness, y'all, y'all is just not an option. And also, that's kind of helpful in some ways, too. That way we're, we won't fight it so much. But there's, a, there's an obedience component here. God is testing us a lot of times. That's one reason why he allows these things to happen to our lives. He's testing us. Will we actually forgive and frankly, again, for our sake and for the other sake and also for the sake of the whole church. Then we see here uh, forgiveness is unifying in verses 10 through 11. He says, basically, for whom you forgive, I forgive also. So he's trying to diffuse the efforts of the Paul party to, to strike out a blow for, for Paul here. And he points to his own example. If, if I have forgiven anything, yeah, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Christ is the one who's the great judge over all these things. And he's already, he's already forgiven this guy. Why don't you forgive him as well is basically what he's saying here. And then he makes this important point here. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. You see, when you, when you harbor un, uh, bitterness and unforgiveness, uh, it, you, you're opening the door for the devil. And the devil's going to get in there and he's going to use that divide. You're giving him ammunition like he doesn't have enough already. And we're just providing them with more. But we don't know who the, who the people who get hurt are really going to be here. There's one commentator said, if the Corinthian church, Corinthian church refused to forgive the penitent sinner, a poison would clog the way of grace. And he goes on to say, we're not ignorant of his schemes. He said to the Ephesians, uh, uh, to not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians four twenty seven and to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6, 11. So basically, unforgiveness welcomes Satan's influence within a church here. We just need to know these, these are some, this is straight from the Lord, straight from the Apostle Paul. It's been modeled, and I think y'all all know this, it's just really hard sometimes. It's really, really hard sometimes. But just like God gave Corey Tim Boone the, uh, the, uh, the power to forgive that jailer. He can give that opportunity to you as well. I like this quote from John MacArthur. Believers are never more like God. Than when they show forgiving mercy to a repentant sinner. That's why the forgiven can be those who are forgiving as well. Father I do pray even as we approach the Lord's table that you would help us to have forgiveness. It's just, it, frankly, sometimes it's impossible with us. But I pray that you would be the God of the impossible, especially when it comes to our hearts and our emotions and the things that have happened to us in the past. Lord, I pray this too. Sometimes people are not bitter against somebody else. They're good Calvinists. They know that God is providential overall. They're bitter towards you. And and we don't forgive you because you are incapable of sin. It's not like there's some kind of offense. But we have got to get that in our own mind that you are a good God. And sometimes a good, loving God who cares for his people and cares for us as individuals will allow us to be sold off into slavery and thrown in jail. We don't know the rest of our story. We're still in the middle of the book. We're surrounded by enemies in the castle. We don't know that we end up getting married to the princess at the end and everybody lives happily ever after. So let us not disgrace our high positions as children of the living God by being angry at you or being embittered towards others. We pray in Christ.